0: Today, I'm joined by author Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, who has just released her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom. Said New Orleans, the book explores the, quote, legacy of racial disparity in the South through a poignant and redemptive family history. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Margaret.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm glad to have you here. And you are from New Orleans originally.
1: I am. I, I grew up in New Orleans. I, um, I was born here and then I lived here until I was 12. And my mom and I moved to Connecticut, but my father is still here. So we're. I mean, I'm here quite a bit. I came when I was writing the book eight times in a year.
0: Wow. So that, that that's interesting. Where did the writing for this book start?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, I when I left law school, I, I um I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I I went to a firm and worked there for a couple years, and then my firm um came out with this incentive program because it was going bankrupt. And they basically provided associates with incentives to leave and work on whatever they wanted to do for a year. Mm. And um, and so I did that. And I started a, another book, a different book, um, about a girl who goes to the Dominican Republic after college. And she's supposed to be helping this troubled community. And she ends up contributing more to its um, to its destruction than to its good. And that book just never really went anywhere. Yeah. I, I mean, I had an agent, but she couldn't quite sell it. And... Um, I worked on it for four years, though, and I was pretty committed to it. And then in the course of working on that book, I met an editor who was running this program through uh, the Jorassi Fellowship. But her program was called The Year-Long Narrative. And the idea is you send her 30 pages a a month and she reads and edits them and sends them back to you. And and, um, the idea is after the year, you'd have a novel. And so I did that with her reluctantly because I really thought the other book was my book. Yeah. But I did it with her anyway because I didn't have much else going on. And um, this book came about, I mean, in a few months. We were basically done, four months. And, I mean, I always had the idea. I always thought, um, I was always struck by how um, my generation, particularly in African-American communities, um, and particularly in certain pockets of the African-American community, I've seen a, a socioeconomic decline and just a decline in the the um the type and degree of opportunities available to to um my generation within that community and um I wanted to explore that I wanted to explore why it's not uncommon to see a black family where grandparents went to college and did great and then you know the parents did did okay too but then the the grandchildren of that first generation just just didn't seem to um have the same resources available mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to look into that and I thought it would be, I'm i am a writer, so I wanted to do it through fiction.
0: Yeah, through that lens right there, yeah. which is really, really interesting and an important part of the novel that I, I want to talk about a little bit later on. But uh, I'm fascinated by these kind of constraints that were placed on you that kind of produced this novel right here, getting it out in such a quick, a uh, succinction of time. Uh, that, that That's interesting that you kind of had that pushing you forward. Did, was that a hindrance or did that help for you? Uh,
1: that's a, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it like that but um I mean yeah I think knowing that I always work I always work pretty fast and then I had children so yeah. I have 3 kids so that made me even faster. <laughs> so I think you know the year really to me felt long but it wasn't. I mean that's totally unusual. A year is not long to write a book. Yeah. But because I kind of had the idea and I was so hungry for this because I had worked on the previous book for so long and and hadn't seen rewards I was just really hungry for something to come out of this so a year to me felt long so I just wanted to get it done I remember when I was working on the book um, my editor saw the first few chapters and she's now she's married to my publisher <laughs> okay so I always in the back of my mind knew she was married to a publisher that I would love to work with but this was never part of any kind of expectation it was just something I knew yeah So after a few chapters, after she read a few chapters, she said, you know, I think I think Jack might want to look at this. This is really good. And so once she said that, then I thought, well, I want Jack to look at it and I want that to be happening, like, right now. So let me just work. <laughs> so I was just writing as fast as I could so that I could get to the point where Jack would be looking at it even quicker. Yeah. And that's basically what was, was driving me. Once she said that, I was like, okay, let me get to that point as soon as I can get to that point.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just went into overdrive just to I get this going. I did,
1: because I was just so tired of not having... Something to show for, I had sacrificed so much I left my job and I felt like, you know, especially my, my peers were still lawyers and they had, they, you know, you could see the fruit of all their effort. You could see they were being promoted and it's terrible that I was even comparing myself to them, but I was. And I just wanted to have something to show for the sacrifice and the effort that had gone in.
0: No, I think that's important. And after working so much time on this other book as well, um, which I've talked to a lot of artists and authors who will spend so much time on a project and eventually just have to shelve it. But what did you learn from that experience right there? Was there you kind of did you build yourself up to be able to do this novel in such a constrained part of time?
1: I think so. I I have to think so, because um, it's. It's so unusual to to finish a book that fast, but i I probably did like thirty rewrites on that first book, like sub- substantial rewrites. And um, I think just just it was almost like I had written more than one book, yeah. Because it wasn't just editing or revising in a superficial way. I mean i would I would I would do first person, and then I would scratch that and do like third person and then I would scratch that and I would add different perspectives and narrators and I mean I I did every potential embodiment of the book that I could imagine. And so it was almost like I was writing many different books. Yeah. And um so I think I think that really helped a lot. And I what I learned from that was I learned how to um because I was basically teaching myself. I would do conferences and I would do classes, but I don't have an MFA. So I was basically teaching myself through reading and um and sometimes through teachers if I were in a particular writing group or conference but what I learned was how to develop characters um and I I think the I think the most important thing I learned though because I think I kind of knew that but I think the most important thing I learned was uh was how to tell a story yeah like I didn't really know how to tell a story I was kind of overthinking it and and I at one point I had to just think like Think about a person who was just good at telling stories orally. Yeah. Like, how does that go? Like, you have—and then so I, I try to think of it that way now. Like, I'll I'll tell my husband, let me tell you a story, and I'll see if he's interested or if he even thinks it's a story. Because sometimes, you know, stories that I think are stories are just fraught with really important themes, but they're not really stories. Yeah. You know? And so um, that's—I try to just simplify it now and just think— is this a story I would even want to listen to for five minutes, much less spend hours reading, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the most important thing I learned. I learned character development, and I learned um, I learned uh, plot, and I learned um, how to insert backstory, and, um, and and you know, there's a lot of stuff that I learned, but I think the most important thing, the thing that, I, that really helped me to move forward was was learning how to tell a story. And I also learned patience because I didn't know a thing about patience. I really, <laughs> <laughs> and now I, you know, after four or five years waiting on something to come about, I was, I think about it in the beginning. I thought I'll write this book and then in a year it'll be published. I'll write it in six months and I'll write five pages a day and I'll be done in six months. And then in a year it'll be published. And that was just so ludicrous. Yeah. And so um, I just learned that it just takes longer sometimes and, And really, all the rejection that I got, um, now I understand that that was just kind of a uh, necessary—it was just a necessary part of the path— but also, it, it's not just a necessary part of the path. It's like a signal yeah. that acceptance is coming. Because if you keep going, you can't have just one side of a coin, yeah, you know? Yeah. Okay.
0: You got the odds going in your favor eventually. Right, yeah.
1: right.
0: No, I, I love that. And I think that's so important to talk about, like, the building of these mechanisms and the idea of, like do people, if I give a summary of this story, A, is it a story, B, do people actually want to hear it other than myself? Right. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like you have so many tomes out there that are like 700 pages of just like meanderingness, and at the yeah. end of it, it's like, why was this even there, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I love that you kind of went to the bare basics there to figure out like the mechanisms of what makes a story function.
1: Right. Um,
0: speaking of, I, I'd love if you could share a little bit from the book for oh, us. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I'll just read from um, the first chapter, which is Evelyn section and Evelyn is speaking to us from the 40s and um, as you may know the the book takes place in three different generations, uh, the 40s and then the 80s and then post-Katrina so it's spanning World War II to to post-Katrina and I'll start from the section at the height of World War II Evelyn, winter 1944 later Evelyn would look back and remember that she wasn't the one who noticed Renard first No, it was her sister Ruby who caught the too-short right hem of his suit pants in her side view. Ruby was thicker than Evelyn, not fat by a long shot, but thick in a way that prevented her from ever feeling comfortable eating. Her favorite food was red beans and rice, and Monday was hard on her. Their mother would boil a big pot and feel relieved, two pounds plenty to feed the family for at least three days, but Ruby felt taunted by the surplus. She'd cut in and out of the kitchen the beginning of the week, sneaking deep bowls of rice and applying as little gravy as she could to maintain the flavor but not alert her family to her excess. Then on Thursday, she'd examine the consequences. It would start in the morning on the way into school. Ruby attended vocational school and Evelyn attended Dillard University, but their campuses were only a few blocks apart and they walked the majority of the way together. "'My thighs are touching,' Ruby would say, "'as if they just started touching the minute before. "'You can't see it, though,' Evelyn would assure her. "'Her own legs so far apart, another leg could fit between them. "'Who are you fooling with? You can't see it. "'Anybody with eyes could see it. "'You don't even need to have eyes. "'You just need ears, and you could hear my thighs swishing together. "'You can't hear anything so soft,' Evelyn would go on, "'and she'd spend the rest of the day wading through that topic. "'Just when she'd think she got to flatland,' Ruby would pull her back into the murk with a question about her behind. Matters would improve a little on Friday, but Ruby would maintain an edge around her even then, and everyone near her felt the prick. Today was a Friday. His pants legs are uneven, Ruby said, about the new boy standing on North Claiborne and Esplanade wearing a brown wool suit, a gray V-neck sweater beneath the jacket. He stood next to Andrew, whom all the girls fawned over at the debutante ball last season. Evelyn's own escort had been second in charm. He had even silenced her nerves by pointing out his friend's waltzing mishaps. But despite her mother's urgings, she hadn't accepted his visit. And a week later, when his interest subsided, she couldn't help but sigh. She looked up now, exhaled the smoke of the cigarette dangling from her fingers. It was still early February, and the winter air hadn't lost its chill. Still all the 7th Ward girls congregated after school outside Dufon's Oyster Shop the best Negro-owned restaurant in the city, and smoked. Evelyn had come to relish the anticipation of the first slight inhale. She was a lady, and the long release afterward. She would never have referred to herself as an anxious person. Ruby had claimed that role in the family, but any nerves that jingled inside her settled at just the thought of a drag. She blew the smoke out of the side of her mouth so as not to hit her sister and smiled at the thought of the uneven hymn. Maybe he was in a rush. Even still, Ruby said, breathing in so sharply she almost made herself choke. He might have found time to even out his pants hems. She laughed. Cute though, too brown for most people, but it is a nice shade of brown. Evelyn nodded. Cute he was. Men and women rushed past them, bustling in and out of offices and stores. The Boot Seed and Feed, Queen of the South Coffee, Miller Funeral Home, Merryweather's Photography. Beige Cut Rate Pharmacy, the Sweet Tooth Ice Cream Parlor, and Fine Time Billiard Hall. The outdoor market where Evelyn's mother made groceries was just a block away at St. Bernard Avenue, and Evelyn could smell the Cajun spices simmering. The butcher let out a high-pitched call, veal to roast and cabbage and green beans. Ruby raised her voice to combat the new noise, and his hair lay so flat, and that's not a conk either. The uneven man looked over at the girl's thin and Evelyn held his gaze for less than a second, so quick if he doubted it had happened, he could convince himself it hadn't. She shook her head back at her sister. No, much more natural-looking than a conch. All that, but he couldn't hem the pants evenly. I wouldn't have ever noticed those pants if you hadn't hit me over the head with it, Ruby, Evelyn said, though it wasn't true. It was clear that despite his pressed suit and neat tie, The uneven man didn't belong among the passe blancs he stood with. No, not with their damn near white skin, straight black hair, and even straighter nose. Their mustaches like silk against their lips, and she didn't know what possessed her to declare otherwise. She liked what she'd said, though. Not only that, but the fact that she said it. And for the rest of the day, whenever she thought of the uneven man, she thought of the weight of her voice when it came out firm. Thanks so much for sharing that.
0: Thank you. Um... Just listening to that right there and from, from the parts that I've read of the book, uh, you do such a good job of establishing this sense of place. And you do it not just in one time period, but in several, you know, in, in four total. Uh, and that's a really hard thing to do for a writer because it's really easy to get lost in the woods or to just start paraphrasing different things in order to make the story function. Uh, how did you navigate that when writing it?
1: Well, um, you know, I did a lot of research. So um, I'm actually not detail oriented about physicality. Mm-hmm. Um for instance, I'm I'm um I was staying in a hotel and there was this piece of art over the bed and I noticed it the second day I stayed there, not the first. It's this massive painting and I I didn't even notice it the first day I stayed there and I thought if someone had asked me is there a piece of art hanging over your bed in the hotel? And I would have said, no, this isn't my room. (laughs) And so I I just am not, I'm not good at noticing that stuff. So I had to do a lot of research. So um, I read several books that that took place in New Orleans in the time periods that I was referencing, Mm -hmm. particularly in the 40s, because I was here in the 80s, so I could remember that. But, you know, the 40s was something I really felt like I couldn't even fathom. And even though I would talk to people, I would talk to grandparents or older people, they really couldn't remember it either because it's just hard to remember what something actually looked like yeah. you know especially if you're used to things progressing and and you're in the present moment now so um i just i did a lot of research and just kind of borrowed and accumulated the details from different books that took place at that time and um and for so that wasn't as true with the 80s because i grew up in the 80s but for the post katrina section that was another situation where I had to do a lot of research. That one was more anecdotal. Yeah. And that one was something that people could actually remember because um, it was linked with such trauma, the trauma of Hurricane Katrina. And um, so I, I thought it was something people could just remember. They could remember what it looked like when they got back home for the first time um, after the storm they could remember the changes that had come about because it was just linked with such a, sh- a dramatic shift and with such trauma. So I would say the the research that I did in the beginning was more about reading, and the research that came later um, in the third part of the book was uh, was uh, was anecdotal.
0: I could see that, and that, that's dealing with uh, the character of T.C. right after Hurricane Katrina right, and the floods.
1: Right, right. Um, and I'm
0: interested, you know, he— Everyone who who was here during the storm or who has family here was affected in some way by it, obviously. Uh, but your character in here, I'm interested in having lived here as a child and kind of going back and forth to New Orleans, how you approached that specific thing and how you were affected and if that was transferred to the character of T.C. in some way.
1: Yeah, you know, I really wasn't. I, I don't I just I just never want to overstate the degree to which I was affected because I I know people lost everything yeah. and people lost um people as well. So, I really wasn't. I mean, um my father was here. He lived he lives uptown and he lived uptown then. And so, you know, there were some very minor issues with his home, but nothing major. And I remember coming back in December and if if no one had told me because of because I was mostly uptown when I came back in December of 2005, mm-hmm. if no one had told me that this massive storm had hit. It would have looked just like, you know, a storm, but nothing like at the significant level that Katrina was. Yeah. And so I really wasn't affected but I because my family was so affected. I mean, I have relatives who were deeply deeply affected and and I'm not talking about extended family like aunts, aunts that I grew up with, yeah. you know, the homes that I grew up visiting and living in from time to time, um, you know, were destroyed. So because of that, because of their pain, I I wanted to do something with that and almost for them. Um but but directly and personally, I I really I never felt like it was it, it took such a huge toll on me. It was more vicarious. Yeah. And um and so I wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor what they went through, not just the physicality of it, but the psychology of it because I feel that there's not enough attention paid to how it would affect someone psychologically, especially someone who was at the height of adolescence when it happened. And and that's how this TC character is. I mean, I love that. And what I wanted for him was that every time he goes into a place, you know, once he gets out of jail, every time he goes into a neighborhood, he just remembers it like it was like this before the storm. And it's like this now because because I think the storm is something that haunts him. And I think he can't see anything without seeing it through the lens of before and after the storm and that's how it is with trauma and I think that's how it is with Hurricane Katrina it just it will just stalk people who were severely affected by it to the extent that they can't um, they can't perceive something without looking at it through that lens
0: yeah and also with the, as we mentioned before in the interview about this generational trauma that is kind of transcended and going over and kind of an overarching theme. Uh, Throughout the book, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how, you know, each individual generation deals with this, but how that is sort of passed on and and built upon.
1: Right. Um, Well, you know, I've I've always talked about it as there's Jim Crow in the 40s that's affecting the first generation. And and everybody understands that that's um, terrible. And it has these um, obvious ramifications and obvious restrictions on the quality of blacks lives. But then as you move forward you, and, and Jim Crow is abolished, you sort of expect that that things will necessarily improve and um, that there will be like a, a hard line leading from one end of the spectrum to the other. And it's not quite that way. There have been um, there have been policies and laws to replace Jim Crow that have the same effects that Jim Crow had and they're they're not as obvious they're not as ostensible you know um, we've had a black president and we can sit wherever we want on a bus and you know in in concrete tangible ways especially if you're not paying attention it looks as if the policies and laws that are um, that are existing now are are uh, are not as pernicious as Jim Crow was but if you really look at, the effects of things like mass incarceration of blacks um, and the the laws and policies that underlie it, or the war on drugs, the criminalization of addiction as opposed to the treatment of it um, as a health crisis. If you look at things like that, if you look at housing discrimination, um, you see that they're they're more subtle and they're not as public or visible, but they're having very, very similar effects. So I just wanted to show... Um, how this new iteration of law and policy is is very, very similar to Jim Crow and all the laws that preceded Jim Crow. And um, I also want to show how it's not just these new laws having replaced them, but it's also the accumulation of, of pain, trauma, and oppression that just end up having um, a heightened effect because there's just been more added on after time. Yeah.
0: What was your favorite part of writing this book, and what was your least favorite?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Huh. Let me think. My favorite part about writing this book, I think, was—my favorite section to read is the Jackie section, and I'm not sure why that is. It might be because (laughs) I lived in New Orleans in the 80s, but that's my favorite part to read. I think my favorite part to write was the TC section. yeah, Because, yeah, because, um, you know, it's a male voice, and so that was different, And it actually, I think, freed me more because I could really use myself as a vessel because I I, I knew personally I didn't have much to contribute to that voice. Like, he's just led such a different life, you know. He's been in and out of jail. He's a male, as I said, um, younger than I am, uh, you know, involved with drugs, just such a different lifestyle. And I think because of that, I didn't, I I could just kind of, sit back and just let that story come out of me. I didn't have to be involved in it and it was more magical because I just wasn't involved. Whereas with the others, you know, you never know how much as a writer you're contributing to the character and yeah. you really don't want to do that and, and you never know how much you're doing it especially if you have something in common with the characters. So I found I'm working on something now where I'm most well most of the characters in the book are male and it's much easier for me because I know it's not me I can just I can just let it ride, you know. Um, My least favorite part about writing this book was probably the research. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really don't like doing research, but it was so necessary with this book, and I did it, but I really... It's amazing how much of a difference it would make, though, because I always write my books first, and then I do the research after, and it's amazing how much texture the research will add, and the the research will even bulk up a character because, you, you know, you're learning the hows of why, of you're learning how a character would do something. And um, and it just it just enriches everything. So it's so important, but I really don't like doing it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Well, um, Margaret, our time is a little short. Oh, but, sure, uh, sure. But before we kind of go, I, I want to ask you, uh, what are you reading right now and what's next for you?
1: I'm reading uh, Sing, Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward, ah. which just came out and I'm really loving it. I I had read Salvage the Bones But, um, I, this is, I really, this is my favorite so far of hers. I'm just savoring it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm working on a book that is about three kids in a boarding school. Um, one is kicked out through the fault of another of the kids. And, and so they don't speak for many years and then they come back together in, in a few decades after they've had their own children and, um, their lives are brought back together again by a, a tragedy.
0: Interesting. Looking forward
1: to that. Thank and, uh, you. Before
0: we go, uh, where can people find more information about you? And don't you have an event tonight in New Orleans?
1: Well, I I actually have something that's industry specific. I'm here for ah. SEBA. It's a conference. So people wouldn't necessarily um, want to go to that. But um, I'm on Facebook at Margaret Wilkerson Sexton Author. And uh, my Twitter handle is mwilkers 13 And um, I also have signed copies of A Kind of Freedom available at Octavia Books.